0: The devil and his angels. We've already seen that Satan appears as a minister of light or as an angel of light. And so his ministers also appear. And so that raises the question, if we're going to talk about angels, that we ought to at least give the devil a little consideration. All of us have heard through the years those statements that, well, Satan is a fallen angel. And Satan is Lucifer, and Satan is this, and Satan is that. And so quite some time back, I thought, you know, I really need to study this subject, because if we're going to understand about angels, maybe there's a lot more we can learn about angels if we study those angels that fell. First of all, did they really fall? Are they really fallen angels? I mean, all the things about this subject. So I thought, well, I'm going to do that. And so what I'm going to give you this afternoon is kind of an introduction into that. This would, all, this would be another six or seven sermons to go into a lot of detail Into this subject, but I just wanted to give this introduction because it really helps, I think, understand some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, especially. Understand about fallen angels and what happened to the angels when they fell, and especially when we talk about the subject we'll talk about at tonight's service. So, I want to think about Satan and his angels for just a moment. Anytime you study the scriptures, the scriptures are work like this. You put a lot of things together, and it creates a composite view for you. For example, the subject of faith. You're not going to find one passage that will tell you everything you need to know about faith. You're going to find faith in a lot of passages. You'll find faith in a lot of people's lives. You'll find a lot of stories, information about faith. And when you put all those things together, it creates for you a composite view of what faith is. Think of it as if it were layers. And that's true with almost any subject. Think about the subject of Christ, for example. For some reason, you have to click this Genesis 3.15 describes that there would be a child born, a son born that someday would overcome Satan in this great victory, that he would be bruised, but the the heel would be bruised, but Satan's head would be uh, bruised. It would be a death blow to Satan. And so it describes this. And so you put that down as a layer and you begin to build an idea that someday God is going to conquer sin through the birth of this child. And then you go to Genesis 9 and you find that God is going to dwell on the tents of Shem. So you say, well... Somehow God is going to come to the world in the tribe of the Semitic people or the the tents of Shem. And so you lay that down as a layer and you begin to build up layers or a composite view of how God is going to save mankind. And then you look and you find out that God tells Abraham that in your seeds, all nations of the or all families, the earth will be blessed. And so yet again, another layer and you kind of lay that down. You said, well, now we've got that a child is going to be born that's going to conquer Satan that this child will be of the Semitic people, that now it will be through the descendants of Abraham. And then you look and you see that a descendant of Judah would become king and that he would never lose that status, according to Genesis 49 and 10, a promise given to uh, uh, Israel. And Israel gave that to his son Judah. So you lay down another layer there and you build up this composite view. And then you look again and you find out in Deuteronomy that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. Someday, and this prophet would be an incredible prophet, and people should listen to this prophet, and so you lay down yet another layer, and you begin to build this composite view, and then you find out that there would be a king on the throne of David someday, that just like David reigned over Israel, that there would be a king that would reign over the people of God, and you learn all the things about this king, and you look at the kingship of David, and you learn about David as a king, and you begin to build... Yet another layer or composite view of what this salvation is going to be. And then you find out that King Cyrus of the Medes was going to release the children of Israel from captivity. And just like he released them from their slavery, there'll be an anointed one, a Christos someday that would release People from enslavement to sin. And so you see that there's going to be an anointed one that will do this. And as you lay these layers down, what happens is you look to the Old Testament and you see Christ. And Jesus says, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. But what makes the Old Testament scriptures even more clear is when you look at it through the lens of the New Testament. You take the New Testament and you begin to let the New Testament be a commentary. On the Old Testament, you let the writings of the apostles define how you study the Old Testament, and then what you have is it brings into view or into focus very clearly the Old Testament. Everybody remembers, well, maybe not everybody, but some of us older ones remember in school, our teachers had this little light box with the refractory mirror above, and they would lay the clear plastic on it, and they would write. And then maybe they would put another piece of plastic and add. And you remember how they would have to crank that handle to get that thing focused in? And I was the one in class that if she didn't get it focused just right, just was about ready to walk up there and focus it because I couldn't stand it to be clear. Well, imagine the Old Testament as being layers that you would lay on top of one another and on top of one another, and the New Testament is the lens that focuses those things and brings it into very clear view. That's how we would learn of the Messiah from the Old Testament. The New Testament is the lens that we look at the Old Testament and help us understand it. That's how you can learn about Satan. That's how you can learn about any subject for that matter. You go to the Old Testament, let the New Testament be the magnifying glass that you look at the Old Testament through and it brings it into view. Well, that's going to be true about the study of Satan in the Garden of Eden. And if you'll see why time will not allow for us to cover all of this. This afternoon, But I just want to get sort of an introduction into this and talk about a few specifics. You go to the Garden of Eden and you see that Satan appears as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And his whole point is to convince man to do something other than what God had told them to do. His point there is the destruction and the undoing of man. You lay down yet another layer and you find that there is a typification or a, an example of Satan in the person of Pharaoh. That you see Pharaoh in bondage and enslaved God's people... That God, through a mighty hand, through a crushing blow, defeated Pharaoh and allowed his people to go. And that is symbolic or it is an alchemist. It is an example or it typifies the work of Satan. Satan embondages people in sin. That God, through a mighty hand, allows people uh, to be freed from sin. And so there's a lot you learn about Satan by studying Pharaoh. What did Pharaoh tell Moses? Who is God that I should hear his voice and that I should obey his command? that I should let your people go. Isn't that exactly what Satan says? Who is God? You see that? It's It's a layer that you lay down and you look at this example of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not Satan. He's an example of Satan. Yet again, we lay down another there in Job, the first chapter, and we look at the dealings of Satan with Job, and you learn a lot about Satan as Satan talked to God and as Satan tried to tempt Job. Then you move to the, and I believe Leviathan in the book of Job is an example or a typification of Satan. There's a lot to study about that. Some of you may or may not agree with that. There's a lot said about Leviathan that's not really possible about an animal. But when you begin to study it, all of a sudden it comes into view that this is an enemy of man. Anyway, that's another possible example that you could look at and learn about Satan. You see that Michael battles for the Satan. Uh, battle Satan for the body of Moses. and You find out how Satan is so desperate to gain some advantage against the people of God in Deuteronomy 34. Satan moved David to number the people. It's another example of the working of Satan, not a typification, but an actual working of Satan in Israel. And you lay that down as yet another layer. Isaiah, we read about Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was referred to as Lucifer, that son of morning. And Lucifer, when you study... Nebuchadnezzar or as he is called in that context, Lucifer, and you studied Nebuchadnezzar, you see that he typifies Satan. What did he do? He led the people of God into captivity. He oppressed them. He conquered them. He tortured them. They were enslaved by his power. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with pride. He thought he was all that. He was finally humiliated and humbled. And there's some things about Nebuchadnezzar that wouldn't hold true as is true with any parable or example. Nebuchadnezzar serves as an example that we can study and learn about Satan. The king of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 28, an incredible study. And it is uncanny how much like Satan the king of Tyre was. When you study Ezekiel 28, it will show you a lot about what Satan is because you study this king that was uh, an example of He typified the work of Satan. Zechariah chapter 3, you see Satan standing before Joshua, the priest of the day, trying to resist and stop God from reestablishing the worship there in the temple that was being reconstructed, and you see the work of Satan. Then you go to the New Testament, and yet more layers are laid upon this composite view. And you see Christ, Satan appearing before uh, Satan when when uh, Satan appearing before Christ when Christ was tempted, and you learn a lot about Satan there in that example. You see Christ's teachings about Satan. You see uh, the the teachings and the examples of Satan possessing human beings, and how Satan uh, how Jesus casts them out. You see Satan asking for Peter that he may sift him like wheat. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail in a moment. You see Satan entering into Judas and causing him to do what he did. You see Satan appearing as in the spirit of the Antichrist, as 1 John chapter 4 predicted. You see then back again to examples or typifications. Revelations describes this great war in heaven. It describes this dragon and all this, and that this war is played out. And what he's talking about is the war of the Caesars against the church. That's what he's literally talking about, how that the Caesars were trying to, particularly Nero, was trying to persecute the early church. But that serves as an example or a type of the work of Satan. So you go and you read Revelations 12 and you learn some things about Satan. The same is true in Revelations 20, yet still talking about the persecuting Caesars and how they uh, tried to persecute the church and they did persecute the church. And that's an example or a typification of Satan. And so you put all those together and you reach this composite view of Satan, and I think you see why this is not something you can give in one or two sermons. This is a long, involved study. A study through the scriptures of the work of Satan to see the things that are true about Satan. I am in the process of building a chart. I call this my Pat-Man and look-alike chart. <laughs> it's too small. It's not meant for PowerPoint. I'm taking this chart, and as you can see, I'm not finished with it, but it's a work in progress. Where I take the various characteristics of Satan over here, he was created, he was perfection, access to the throne and so on. Look at all the examples, Pharaoh, Leviathan, Nebuchadnezzar, King of Tyre, Baal, Beelzebub, we'll look at in just a moment, the persecuting Caesars, and compare them to passages in the New Testament that speak of Satan specifically. And when you do that, you sort of begin to see how God is showing us in the example of all of these evil men, the nature of Satan. Now, why is that important to me and you? That is important to us because Satan is our enemy. He is seeking your and my destruction. We need to know about him. We need to know him like we need to know about the flu. You need to understand how to defeat him, how to resist him, and how to overcome him. Oh, it is very important to study the subject of Satan. Now, having done all this, what I want to do, I want to go through more or less this column. I want to go through what the New Testament has to say about Satan, What we're going to do, we're going to get the lens out and polish it up so that in the future, if you do want to study these other things, you'll have the lens ready to go so you can look back into the Old Testament and study the nature of Satan in some of those examples that have been laid before, such as Pharaoh, the king of Tyre, Leviathan, and so on. The word Satan literally means opponent. It's a, of Aramaic origin, and a Satanus or Satan, it's a, it's a word that means the accuser. The one that stands accusing us. If the Holy Spirit is telling us anything in the usage of this word, it's telling us this. Satan stands before God for the purpose of accusing you. He's looking for anything he can accuse you of. He's standing there saying, oh, he's not worthy. Don't you see this? Don't you see that? Can't you see he's a sinful person? Can't you see he's got this weakness or she's got that weakness? That's what Satan's doing. That's that's the essence of what the scriptures mean when it uses this term to describe. He is the accuser of the brethren. The word the devil, Diablos, also means false accuser, one who falsely accuses. The word Diablos is is a, uh, I believe it's from Latin origin. It's the word that we use in, in our scriptures. It describes this one that is a false accuser who falsely accuses somebody of something. And so Satan not only seeks to accuse you, he will falsely accuse you if he can. That's the nature of Satan. Well, why is that? Why are these words used to describe this? Is Satan an angel? Did he fall? Was Satan created by somebody other than God? I mean, how, who is he? How is he there? Why is he there? Why would there be somebody like Satan? There are a million questions to ask regarding the subject of Satan. Matthew, the 12th chapter. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, They said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely... The kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus, first of all, these uh, Pharisees that appeared to Jesus, talking to them, insinuated that Beelzebub is Satan. In order to understand what the the relevance of this is, we need to know a little bit about Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a false god that worshipped in Canaan. It was the dung god, the lord of the flies, if you will. I think that... There's a movie by that name. I've never seen it. I don't know what it's about, but that's what this God is Beelzebub. It literally means the God of dung. How curious. First of all, who would worship that? But people did. They worshiped the dung God there in Canaan. The Pharisees used that name of that false God to describe the leader of all the demons and saying, well, that's how you're casting out demons. Demons. You're casting out demons by the power of the leader of all the demons, that one that we refer to as Beelzebub. Jesus did not challenge their usage of that. Now, he is not, he is not Beelzebub. He is not the dung god. That is a, that's a description that the Pharisees used to describe him. Christ let that description stand. What he did say, though, is it's ridiculous to think that Satan would cast out his own. His kingdom wouldn't stand. It wouldn't be successful as it is successful here on this earth, if that's what was going on. And he said, therefore, you know that God has come upon you. But I notice here that Christ allows that to stand, that here Satan is allowed to be referred to as if he were Beelzebub. For that reason, I put in my column a study of the Baals. Go back to the Old Testament, study the Baals. You'll learn about Satan. What did people do when they worshiped the Baals? Look at the astrology regarding the Baals. You'll find out a lot of things. It's very interesting. It's a very involved study. And you'll find out things about uh, Satan. You know what this also tells us? False worship is worship of Satan. Because that's what those people were doing. They were worshiping, but they were worshiping falsely. They were worshiping the wrong gods. They were worshiping in the wrong ways. The things they were doing was unacceptable. This is allowed to stand here as being described as a worship of Satan. So be aware. We need to worship God according to his pattern, according to his teachings. False worship is the worship of Baal. Revelation uses a phrase to describe him, not just Beelzebub. What I'm doing here, I'm showing not just names like Satan and, and the devil, but, but other descriptive words to describe this being. Beelzebub being one of them. Another is Apollyon or Abaddon. Revelations 9 and 11, they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Apollyon and Abaddon both mean basically the same thing. They mean destruction or the destroyer. So the book, the Holy Spirit, gives to us this word that the Greeks use, that the Hebrews use to describe one who destroys and says that's what Satan is. The Holy Spirit is telling us that the purpose of Satan is destruction. God brings creation. Satan brings destruction. It's just sort of polar opposites, isn't it? It's just another thing of note. Legion Luke 8, verse 30, Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? He said, Legion, because many demons had entered him, and they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. A couple of things I note about this. First of all, there are a lot of demons. We think of Satan. We think of the devil. We generally think of him as one, and there is one being Satan, one being the devil. But the devil is not alone, and it's important for us to understand that as we look at some of these passages. The devil has a legion of demons helping him, assisting him to do what he does. Let me explain to you why that's important. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. God is here. He's at Mars. He's on Jupiter. He's in the Andromeda. He's in heaven. He's everywhere. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. God's omniscient. He knows Everything. These three terms define God as unique. Nobody else can be that. That's why God is above all others, for those three ideas. The devil is not omnipotent. He's not everywhere at the same time. If he was, he would be God. The devil is not omniscient. He does not naturally know everything. There are things the devil does not know. The devil is not omnipresent. Omniscient, omnipotent. He's not those things. If it was just the devil, there would only be one of him. He wouldn't be so effective. He has a host of demons working with him. That's how he's so effective in the human race. And that's how he can accomplish those things which he accomplished. And so we have an example here in this one being that this legion or this this army of demons had occupied this one person. But notice what else. They are terrified that they would be cast out into the abyss. And one of the other examples, talking about demons, he said, before the time. This tells me that not just Satan, but Satan and all of his demons know that their day is coming. They know there is a time coming that they're going to be cast into what he describes here as the abyss. They don't like it. They're not happy about it. They're dreading it. You see that in these, in the words of this legion begged them that he would not command them to go out into the abyss they're terrified of it they know what's coming and satan knows what's coming having looked at these names these definitions these similarities let's look at what the new testament describes about satan we're not going to look at veiled passages we're not going to look at uh, examples or typifications we're going to look at right down front street passages what do the passages of the new testament say about satan Our first one is in Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. This passage is describing the act of appointing an elder. And he says, as you appoint an elder, be careful not to appoint a person that's a newcomer to the church, a novice, somebody who's relatively new in the faith. If you do, there's a danger, he says. There's a danger that this person would be uh, overtaken by the same problem that Satan was overtaken with. Well, now let's think about the elder for a moment, and then we'll go look at Satan and see what that might be. If you appointed a man that was an el- uh, to be an elder that was a newcomer in the church, a newcomer to the faith, you know what might happen to him? He might say, boy, I'm all that, and you must obey me, and I'm pretty important. And you can see where it would cause great trouble in the church and great division in the church because the man would be lifted up with pride. Because he really hasn't had enough experience to understand that to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you must be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And so he's a newcomer, a lot of trouble, filled with pride. What happened to Satan? Satan was in a position of being acceptable. If he's like this elder. At some point, he was acceptable before God. Otherwise, we can't say of him that he fell. Think about this. If I'm standing on the edge of a cliff, I'm okay. If I fall, it must be that at one point I was in a condition of not having fallen. That's pretty simple to say. But now I have fallen. You see that? Satan was at one point in some condition of not having fallen. But something happened to him that caused him to fall. Now prior to falling... He was in a condition that would lead him to have pride. You know why a person has pride? A person has pride because, first of all, they're lying to themselves about their abilities, but they must place that lie on some shred of truth. Let's say that, for example, I came to believe that I was really good looking. Okay, y'all know that's not true. (laughs) But a person might think that because maybe they are, you know, okay looking. And they look in the mirror and they say, You know, and then you forget about it. And the next thing you know, pride has made you think that you're just the most handsome thing on the earth, you know. There was some reason of truth that gives birth to misplaced pride. You see that? That must be true with Satan. Satan had some condition, some capability, some thing that defined him as a being that would allow him to be puffed up. He wasn't a rank-and-file angel. He was something special. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a, a, a possibility or place for there to be pride. But he was filled with pride, and because of that pride, he fell. And we find in this verse also what his sin was. His sin was pride. So it says, where did Satan come from? Satan was in good standing with God. Just from this verse, we can draw this conclusion. Satan was in good standing with God. That his good standing with God led him to be filled somehow with pride falsely. His pride caused him to fall, and the sin that he was condemned of was pride. It's all about pride. That's what gave birth to Satan. You know, pride, I've been studying some about pride lately, is a particularly menacing sin. It's self fulfilling. The more you think That you have some ability or that you have some great character about yourself. And the more you lie to yourself, the more it fulfills itself. And it just builds on itself and builds on itself. And Satan is the perfect example of that. It just keeps building on itself and building on itself till now you've got this monster. This monster seeking the destruction of all others. Now that's what this verse alone lays out for us. This idea of this being that was accepted with God. Whatever he was, he was accepted with God. He was in a position that led him to be puffed up. He fell, and his sin was pride. Let's look at another verse. Now, remember, we're going to put these down as a composite view. We've got that established. Let's look at Luke, the 10th chapter, verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy, And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Let's set this in context. The apostles had been sent out to heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, to tell people that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is sometimes called the limited commission. They were sent out in Matthew, the 10th chapter. And so here goes the apostles. And actually, there were 70 of them going across... Israel and they're going up and you say, okay, your daughter is dead and they go raise her from the dead and you go over here and your son is possessed with some demon or has epilepsy and they cure that child and they come over and they're doing these good works and they're casting out demons and they come back to Jesus and they said, this is cool. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's really great. We just say in the name of Jesus, I command you to depart from him and boom, There goes the demon. This is really great. Jesus said, let me tell you something. I was there the day it happened. I saw it. I saw the war. I saw the battle. And I saw Satan when he was cast out of heaven. He said it was like lightning. Whoa! Cast out. I saw it. Don't talk to me about your piddly little demons you're casting out. I saw Satan cast out of Of heaven. That's I'm kind of adding to the meaning there, but that's the essence of what Christ told them. I saw it. I saw Satan cast out of heaven. There's no glory in that. There's no rejoicing in that. I'll tell you what to rejoice in, Jesus said. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. That's what you need to rejoice in. Rejoice that you're counted worthy to live with God. Count that as a blessing. Casting out demons, it's nothing. I saw Satan cast out of heaven like lightning from this we learn a couple of things first of all jesus was in heaven and witnessed satan being cast out this would go to timing if we're going to try to i think this is a fallacy to try to put timing on eternal spiritual issues i don't believe god looks at things through a clock like we do before here and after and sequentially he doesn't do that but if we were going to try to place conditions of timing You could say that Jesus was in heaven and witnessed Satan being cast out. That's first. Secondly, Satan was cast out suddenly. Whenever it happened, it was like lightning. Boom, he was cast out. Thirdly, Satan was cast out of heaven and his destination was described as falling. I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky or like lightning from heaven. He said, I saw that. It was was described as a falling. And that's what the other passage told us. That here is Satan in this lofty position, and now he's fallen from that position. Jesus says, I saw it. I was there the day it happened. You need to rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. That's what you need to be rejoicing in, he told the apostles. Let's look at another passage. Again, the devil took him, on a high, took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only, Shall you serve? Pardon me. This is the the temptation of Christ. Here it is. For all eternity. It's about to be determined. Satan so wants Christ to fall. He wants Christ to bow down and worship him. Oh, the pride. Oh, the arrogance. Christ was there. He saw Satan cast out of heaven because of his pride. And now Satan has Christ up on this mountain. Just the two of them. The destination of all of mankind. Yea, all of eternity. stands And hangs in the balance as Satan looks at Christ and says, Just admit that I am better than you. Just admit it. Just get down on your knees and worship me. And I'll give all of this to you. I for one am very glad that Christ resisted. You know what Christ did here is kind of interesting to me. He did not challenge Satan's ownership of the glory of the world, of the the kingdoms. He didn't challenge that. He didn't say, it's not yours to give to me. And I think that's important when we look at some of the other passages. Satan owns something. Satan has control of something. And he was offering something to Christ. And Christ didn't say or insinuate in his answer that it's not yours to give me. No, what Christ said was you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I'll tell you what Christ said. Christ says you don't deserve it. There's only one worthy of worship, the Lord your God. He's the only one that shall be served. He's the only one that deserves it. The omnipotent, the omniscient, the omnipresent, the all-powerful, almighty God. He deserves to be worshipped. Satan, it's not you. Maybe the pride was pricked a little bit. Maybe not. I really believe that you get some insight into the nature of the battle right here. Satan thinks he's better than Christ. He th- I, I, don't, I don't think we have to even assert that because he asked Christ to worship him. Look at what he wanted to happen. He wanted Christ to bow down and worship him. That's what Satan thinks Should happen here. He thinks that's the right thing. Christ says no. All of eternity hangs in this moment. Satan had some ability to take Jesus. And what I'm trying to emphasize here is Satan does have some power. And he's using some of his power here to try to woo the Savior. And he takes him into this mountain. Satan claimed ownership of the kings of the world and their glory. And Jesus did not dispute this claim. And then finally, Satan would surrender everything. Satan would surrender this earth. His position as being prince of the power of the air. His control over all of mankind. He would surrender it if Christ would just bow down and worship him. Oh, the arrogance. He's just eat up with it. He cannot stand that Christ is above him. That's what I see here happening. If just Christ would worship me then I would be justified in my thoughts of being high and lofty before being cast out. That's what I see being unfolded in these passages here. The arrogance and the pride of Satan. Ephesians chapter 2. So now we have Satan here on the earth. We have Christ in his correct and lofty place. We have God, the creator of the universe. And so now the apostle tells us, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air. Remember last night we talked about principalities and powers. Well, here's one of them. According to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. First of all, he describes Satan as being the course of this world, that people walk according to the course of, of this world. I if you would allow me a little liberty here in redefining or restating this course of the flesh. The course of the flesh versus the course of the spirit. The course of this current order of things, the current status, the current status being carnality, this fleshly world that we live in, Christ says some walk according to the course of this world and that's what belongs to Satan. Satan has been cast out to earth as we'll see shortly. He's here on this earth, and he claims ownership of the flesh. That's what he's trying to claim ownership of, carnality. That's what he says is the prince, that he's the course of the world. Then he says he's according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, the Holy Spirit would not describe him as a prince if it were not true. Satan is a prince. He is the prince of the power of the air. Now, I don't know exactly what all that means but I trust the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says in this passage that he is the prince of the power of the air. Satan somehow occupies the atmosphere of this earth, this realm that we live in. And he is, according to the course of this world, he is the prince of the power of the air, and he is a spirit working in the sons of disobedience. Satan is somehow, by some method, influencing people to disobey the sons of disobedience. He somehow has a power and a mechanism whereby he can convince people to do things they should not do and walk according to the course of the world rather than the course of the spirit. He is convincing people to fulfill fleshly appetites in a way other than as described by God. You see that? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You see, God created this world and he created all kinds of things for you and I to do righteously to get married. To enjoy our intimate relationship with our spouse. It's the command of God. It's a blessing of God. It's right. It's acceptable. It's the plan of God. Satan has come in and found all manner of adultery and fornication to pollute that which was beautiful from God. There's a multitude of examples of this. God gave us the ability of language so that we could build one another up, so that we could glorify and praise his name, so that I could pay you a compliment. So that I could say an encouraging word or you might say an encouraging word to me. The gift of the tongue. Satan has found ways to pollute that so that people now lie. They use foul language in all kinds of ways. What God created to be true and pure and good when he described this creation as very good. In Genesis, the first chapter, now Satan being the prince of the power of the air and being cast out to the earth, being the... the, owning the course of this world, has found all kinds of ways to pollute that, and he's seeking to convince people to follow his appetites rather than the appetites prescribed by God. And those that follow him are described as followers are children of wrath. There's a destination for those who follow the flesh and the fleshly appetites that Satan advertises before us. One of the questions that come up when you start talking about this is how is it that Satan, what's this mechanism he has to convince us to follow him? Does he speak to us? Does he have a way to invade your conscience and alter it? Is he that silent voice you hear in your head? Does he have miraculous ability to alter reality before you to make you choose evil paths? I will tell you I don't know the answer to all those questions. But I do know that he is a prince and he does have power. He has ability. He has a mechanism to tempt us. Let's look at some other passages. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. First of all, Satan is described by the Holy Spirit as being the God of this age Or the God of this earth, the age of the earth. Satan has been described by the Holy Spirit as being a God. Again, I trust the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit says that Satan is the God of this age, I believe he is the God of this age. Which leads us back to our first question. Satan had a reason to be puffed up. There was something about the nature of Satan that held him up higher than maybe other beings so that he might think that he is a God or a higher God or some kind of high being so that he would be puffed up. And the Holy Spirit does recognize that he is the God of this age. Oh, he is a powerful being. Don't deny that. Don't uh, don't fail to recognize that he is the God of this age. Followers of Satan are perishing. Followers of Satan's minds are blind. We have mentioned a moment ago about the mechanism that Satan uses. Whatever that mechanism is, it's a blinding mechanism, and it blinds your mind. Somehow, Satan is able, within your mind, to cloud your vision, make you see things you shouldn't see. When you take your focus off of God, you're blinded, and you see things and do things you shouldn't do. It's not a power that can't be resisted, but it is a power. And it's a power the scripture says he has. He goes on to say that the gospel is the way to escape this blindness. See what he said? But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. The gospel is the single power that will unblind us. The gospel in its largest sense, through the salvation through Christ Jesus, will unblind us. It will overcome this blindness of mind that Satan offers to you and I. The God of this age has no power over the God of the gospel. That's the short answer to this verse. Whatever power Satan has in being the God of this age, it pales in comparison to the power of the God of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 12 verse 31. Now the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world, now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Watch that verse. Satan is described here as being the ruler of, Of this world, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing in me of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, Christ is speaking to some extent about the Romans that were coming to take him. But I believe he's extending this when you read it in context into the hands of Satan. Maybe this is an example of where the Romans are an example or typify the work of Satan. Whatever the case, it's clear in context that he's talking about Satan when he describes Satan as the ruler of this world. Don't be deceived. Satan is powerful. He's described in the verses that we read as prince, as a god, and as a ruler. He is powerful. He, there is a reason that, that he had this lofty position that he was puffed up. He has been given by God some amount of pretty incredible power. Now, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8 through 9, we see how he's using that power. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, Walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. First of all, he describes this Satan as an adversary to man. He's an adversary. Satan is not your friend. You know, people say that, they'll say, well, the devil made me do it. Or you'll hear your favorite country song where the guy says, I'm shaking the right hand of the devil. (laughs) That's all very misplaced. Satan does not shake your hand. Satan is your enemy. There's no other way to describe it. He is your adversary and he seeks one thing. He seeks to devour you. He seeks your destruction. I have a thought based on all of these verses. Satan wants so bad to prove That his pride was not misplaced. That he's willing to destroy humanity to prove it. To show to God that he's more powerful than God. And how incredible it is that God through the giving of his son in the gospel. Has shown to Satan that sin can be forgiven. And that man can live with God. No matter how Satan tries. Salvation cannot be taken away. The saving power of Christ is yet available. Whatever the case, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There are several words here that are very clear in describing this entity called Satan. First of all, he's our enemy. He's an adversary. He walks about. He's not idle. Satan is looking for you. He's on the hunt seeking whom he may devour. Don't think of Satan as uh, as a being that's sort of docile. That's not active. Oh, Satan is very active. Seeking whom he may devour. He's a roaring lion. You think of a lion that's roaring and how ferocious it is. And how uh, much it wants to conquer its prey. And that's what he's describing. Satan is this roaring lion seeking, walking about whom he may devour. He is your enemy and he seeks your destruction. And he's active in doing it. He's looking for anything he can do to trip you up so that you'll belong to him rather than to belong to God. John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he's a liar and the father of it. He says, Satan desires us to do evil. That's what he wants. So if you're of their father, the desires of your father you want to do. You see that? Satan desires you fail, to do evil, to commit things that cause you to fail, to engage in self-destructive behavior. That's what Satan desires. He's the father of murder, the father of a life from the very beginning of time. Those were the sins that he committed, that he uh, convinced man to commit. He's able to sway man to the point that they are of him. You see that? You are of your father. That describes ownership, a belonging, that he is able to sway men to the point that they belong to him. And these are people who don't know that they belong to him, but because of their behaviors, they've taken on uh, ownership of Satan. Acts 26 verse 17. <clears throat> Pardon me. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I sent, now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from the darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Just two short, simple statements made here. Satan has power He said he's going to turn from the power of Satan and Satan is darkness. And the scriptures describe Satan as darkness a lot as opposed to God as light. So often Satan is described in these polar opposites. All of these opposites, darkness and evil. God is light and good. Satan is hate. God is love. All of these things you see. And in doing that, he describes Satan as having power. Don't be deceived. He is powerful. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. You see that? Exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He describes our battle against Satan as just that, a war. Satan is at war With man, This is war that we're fighting, and Satan is at war with man, but Satan can be defeated with the right weapons. Pardon me, I'm going to get my water out. I want you to think just a moment now about these mechanisms that Satan uses, these powers that he has. Satan has power. He's described as a ruler. He's described as a god. He's described as a prince. All of these things describe his powers over mankind, and he does have powers. To blind your mind. But they're powers that can be resisted. With the right tools. We've been given those tools. Now if you were going to go to a war. A carnal war. You would want to take the right weapons. You'd want to have bigger and better weapons than the other guys. If that guy shows up with a pea shooter. I'm going to take a 45. If he shows up with a 45. I'm going to take an M16. You get the point. I'm going to take better weapons than he has. Well the scriptures tell us. We have better weapons than Satan. We have weapons that will defeat Satan. Whatever abilities Satan has to pollute you, to trick your mind, to move you to do things you shouldn't do. Whatever abilities he has, we have abilities or we have weapons that'll help us defeat those. And he says these weapons are arguments that must be cast down. You see that? These these weapons that are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds, these, these uh if you will, the ivory towers that represents the evil of Satan, we have weapons that will pull down those strongholds. Arguments that must be cast down. Here's how it's done. Watch the last part of this verse. Um, every I think is also against the of God. Bringing here's how it's done. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Here's how we defeat Satan. Satan can only be defeated when we take when we captivate our own desires. And replace them with obedience. You know that power of Satan. That roaring lion that seeks whom he may devour. That thing that probably should scare you just a little bit. That powerful entity of Satan. Here's how you defeat him. Captivate your own desires. And obey this. Guaranteed to work. Guaranteed to shut him up. He cannot resist it. He cannot overcome it, and he cannot fight against it. He's done. When you captivate your own desires, bring yourself into discipline, discipline yourself, self-control, and you obey this. That's how you pull down strongholds. That's how you defeat arguments. That's how Satan is conquered. Oh, he is powerful. He is the God of this age. Don't be deceived. He is a roaring lion, but he can be defeated. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says that Satan has wiles. You know, I never looked that up and I I always wondered, what is wiles? Is that like the wily coyote? What what does it mean to have wiles? I looked it up, it just means method. He has a method. Methodia is the Greek word. He has methods. Satan is not without a plan. Oh, he has a plan. He's organized. This word indicates that he's organized in his approach, that he has a plan in place, that it's not happenstance or sloppy in the way that he attacks man, but very organized. That's what this word indicates. The wiles of Satan. Satan fights a spiritual fight, but it has fleshly consequences. And here's how he fights this spiritual fight. He uses a host of wicked servants that this passage refers to as principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual hosts. Again, we're not sure how the mechanism works. But however it works, it involves multiple demons, principalities, and powers, and spiritual hosts. As I stand here being tempted to sin in my life, Maybe the sin I'm being tempted to sin is to lie so I can make some money. One of Satan's demons. Maybe it's a principality. Maybe it's a spirit. Maybe it's one of the spiritual hosts. Maybe it's a ruler of darkness. Whatever it is, here it is. Somehow it's working on my mind. Some way it's influencing me to blind my eyes so that instead of seeing what I ought to see, what I see is fulfilling the fleshly desires he's put in front of me, using the tongue for that which it should not be used for, using the flesh for that which it should not be used for. As you walk your life, every day, you're surrounded by spiritual hosts, rulers of darkness, principalities and powers. That's how, that is the, the method by which Satan approaches you. This world is filled with them. Maybe on the pew next to you right now. I don't know. I do know what this passage teaches, that that's what we're fighting. That's the fight that we're fighting. We're given armor. All of these things is another way of saying what the other verse that we read said. Captivate your own desires and obey. That's what you do. And you can defeat any demon that comes upon you. They have no power over you if that's what you do. No temptation has overtaken you such, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with, with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Satan is restrained by God. He's held back by God. Satan's attacks are also similar in all people. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. We've already established that Satan approaches you by trying to blind your mind and he does it. With a whole host of wicked servants, these principalities, these powers, these spiritual hosts that are trying to influence us, however they do, to commit sin and to do things other than what God would have us do. Now we find out that God has put them, at, at least to some extent, at bay. They can't have full access to you. They cannot tempt you above what you're able Whatever methods they use to cloud our minds, to influence us to do evil, whatever methods and however they do that, however it is they get in and cloud our conscience, however they do that, they are held back by God. God has said, here's a line and you cannot cross it. You cannot tempt man above that he is able. Maybe God has some of his angels fighting them off. I don't know. Strictly not told to us in the scriptures. I don't know. I really don't know. But I do know this. There's a line they can't cross. And praise be to God. There's a line they cannot cross. So have confidence. God has made it a winnable battle. He's limited their ability. And he's given us a way to overcome. Captivate your own desires. And obey. And you can defeat Satan and whatever armies of demons he brings at you. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the works of his hand, his possessions, increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to the face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. A lot of questions come up. Somebody asked earlier, why didn't God just destroy Satan right away and be done with it? Satan has challenged God. This challenge cannot go unanswered. Satan has challenged God's power. He's challenged his omniscience. He's challenged his ownership of the very human race. This is what we're seeing as a microcosm of it right here. Satan saying, oh, Job just worships you because you've made it so easy on him. Just, just bother him a little bit and he'll stop. God said, Okay. It's on, but you do it. We'll see how it turns out. That's why, if and I don't know how to say it except that, that's why this battle wages, because it all goes on to show that God is the God of all, not Satan. Satan must be conquered in this battle. You and I are the battlefield over which the battle is fought, ownership of mankind. Satan wants us, God owns us, and, and it's up to us to make the choice. Now, in this case... Satan was held back from God's people by this hedge that God had placed around around Job. But Satan campaigned for God to reduce his protection. Satan went to God and said, just reduce the protection a little bit. Let me have at him. Let me see if I can test him a little bit. See who he'll choose. There's another example of that. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Satan works through one person against another person. You see, Satan was using Peter to try to get to Christ and ultimately though satan will respond to statements of faith. Jesus said, "Get behind me, Satan." Satan went away. So as satan comes to you, if he's trying to attack you, maybe the hedge has been brought down, statements of faith will resist him. Statements of faith will push him away. He can't stand it. He cannot stand faith in mankind when God places rather faith, when man places faith in God, he cannot resist it. Jesus said, "Get behind me, Satan." Finally, a very moving event to me. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. This is yet another example of Satan campaigning to God. Let me have him. Satan looked at Peter and he somehow knew the weaknesses of Peter. He said, Let me sift him like wheat. Let me put him in there and work him over a little bit. You know what Jesus did? Jesus didn't say no. And Peter was sifted like wheat. I wonder if Peter, as he went out and wept bitterly, if he uh, remembered the words of the Lord and understood what it meant to be sifted like wheat. To be put through the trials. And then I can't help but wonder if. Peter reflected back and said well. The Lord is praying for me. I've got to tell you there'll be a lot of times. I wouldn't have made it have I don't that The Lord is at the right hand of the Father praying for me. I, you find times that are difficult for you to get through. Have faith in that. Satan may be sifting you like wheat, but Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying that your faith will not fail. Satan is a powerful adversary, but he can be defeated. We've been given exactly what we need to overcome. It's really up to us to exercise and use the weapons we've been given. I hope you've enjoyed the study of the afternoon. Tonight, Lord willing, we're going to study a subject I call the curious angels. We're going to get back to a study a little bit more of the angels, but I just wanted to stop for a little bit and study Satan because Satan is an angel that fell, and he's an angel we have to deal with daily. He is that angel that might come to you and tell you something. Don't listen to him. Listen to the word. Obey the word, and it will lead us in the right path. I'll turn the floor at this time over to one of the other brethren.